With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 9th, 2016, the even longer National Nightmare Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Brooklyn, just a couple of blocks from Hillary Clinton's former campaign headquarters at the Slate office. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, you are where? I'm in New Haven, in my house. I'm glad to be home today. And John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, are you uh, are you still in New York or have you headed back to Washington? I'm in New York City. I'm in the um, CBS This Morning conference room above the CBS This Morning studio where we were all night last night and where then I, I was again this morning. I'm still in the throes of election analysis. All right. Well, we're going to get to that. On this week's GabFest, a dog named Donald Trump caught a mail truck named the United States. How did he win the presidential election? How will he govern? And what should Trump skeptics and foes do now? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, what, if anything, good came from this poisonous election? If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And also a reminder, I know it's probably hard to think about this right now, but maybe you have a good idea. We have a conundrum show coming up at the end of November. If you have a conundrum, like, should I move to Canada? That might be a conundrum that someone might send us. You could send us conundrums at GabFest at slate.com or tweet at SlateGabFest and use hashtag conundrum in any case. Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. He won last night's presidential or yesterday's presidential election pretty handily, despite losing the popular vote, sweeping the South and most of the Rust Belt, winning Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin against all the polling, or at least that's what it looks like as we tape this morning. John, give us the first sort of 30,000 foot view of what happened. Well, um, I think the fastest way to say it is that Hillary Clinton didn't turn out the Obama coalition and Donald Trump turned out his coalition as much as he needed to. He still got a million votes fewer than Mitt Romney did in 2012, but Hillary Clinton got 5 million fewer votes than than Barack Obama did. So when she didn't perform with young people, African-Americans and Latino voters in the ways that he did. Also, uh, Trump's split with the GOP didn't show up. He actually got 90% of the Republican Party. Clinton got 89% of the Democrats. Going into the election, we thought one of the surefire things we knew was that Donald Trump was underperforming with Republicans. Either he wasn't, and the, we, the polls were wrong, or people continued to come home into the Republican Party as they had been from the third debate. And they did that because basically he stayed talking on the teleprompter, stayed away from controversies, and that was sufficient for Republicans who were reluctant, but basically barely reluctant, and not wanting to elect Hillary Clinton. I think a couple of other quick things. There was no women surge for Hillary Clinton. Trump did better than Mitt Romney did with men, but Clinton didn't do any better with women than Obama did. I think also that uh, she never had the kind of message for the the non-urban, non-college electorate. That's a portion of the electorate that the Republicans always win, but she got pounded worse than Obama did with that portion of the electorate. And you got to have some message to dampen your opponent's strength in his base. And then I think finally that the ground game and the data and the analytics, which Clinton had to a fairly well is, you know, in the cliche that people use, you know, is good for a field goal. Um, but the problem is, you know, she wasn't within field goal range um, or the score wasn't, you know, uh, the score was bigger or something. But anyway, all of that effort and, and it, you know, wasn't enough to overcome all those previous things I mentioned. Emily, voters didn't see Donald Trump's tax returns. It's true. But they knew who he was. They heard the allegations of sexual assault. They heard the tape of him talking to Billy Bush. 
They knew the racist things that he said. They knew his lack of preparation. They knew that he was a liar. They had all the information, and yet they voted for him. How did that happen? Right. We know what we bought. Although in this really strange way, I don't think we know at all what we're getting in this actual president. But we bought all of those things you just said, plus the xenophobia of build the wall and calling Mexicans rapists and calling for mass deportations. And so... Imagine there are people for whom all of that is a plus. It's not a bug. It's a feature. And then there are other people who it just wasn't the main thing of value they thought they were getting. They thought they had a champion who was going to punch Washington and the elites in the face as, you know, multiple people have said over the course of this election. And that was really powerful. And when you talk to Trump supporters or read the quotes from Trump supporters, there is this urgent kind of excitement about the idea of destroying elites in Washington, in the media. I was talking to someone who was at a Trump rally over the weekend who said that what the crowd was really the most passionate about was chanting CNN sucks. And I don't totally understand that, I will confess. But there is this idea, I think, of like this deep unfairness and the sense of loss and decline among white people in America, especially white people without a whole lot of education, that that runs deep and was divisive in a way that I think Clinton's message didn't address. I mean, now in retrospect, it seems like obvious that those people would be put off by a message, for example, about gun control, which was part of her campaign, and that there were other ways in which she was alienating rather than drawing people toward her. John, one thing that's odd is that that he he won pretty handily. I mean, there were states that were close, but he he's going to have more than 300 electoral votes, it looks like. It isn't clear that something like Comey or even the debates, that, that none of that stuff seemed to have made that much of a difference. The, the dynamics of the race don't seem fundamentally different on election day than they were uh, eight months earlier. And maybe she was never actually in a position to win it. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. I think we, uh, we probably have to sit down and do the math about where she lost and by how much in the electoral college um, uh, to see whether you're right. Because if if we got some small margin states, you could imagine that margin. There was a there was a Comey effect, certainly in House and Senate races that strategists identified. Now, I say certainly it's in a lot of people's interest to say that Comey depressed turnout could very well be the case that he did. Um, uh, but we'd have to do the math to see if the margin's real small in places that would have gotten her some electoral votes that she didn't get because she's at the moment ahead in the uh, in the popular vote, which we should talk about, because um, it's hard to claim a mandate when more people wanted your opponent than you, even though obviously he wanted fair and square at the Electoral College. But I think it goes back to your original statement, which, which is that people knew all these things about him and wanted him anyway. 60% of the voters viewed Trump unfavorably, and he got 15% of those voters, according to the exit polls. 63% of the voters said they didn't think he had the temperament for the job, and he got 20% of those voters. 60% said they didn't think he was qualified to be president, and he got 18% of those voters. There were a number of voters who let him off, who excused him his deficiencies because they want to blow up the system. And the niceties of temperament and judgment are the things that the elites talk about. But when the system isn't working for you in any way, it's okay if somebody doesn't quite have all of the skills for this stupid system that's not working for me. I just want the system to be dismantled and broken. And maybe his lack of talent might make that dismantling uh, happen faster. The problem is with that, um, or the sense of anxiety that the 60 million people who voted for Hillary Clinton uh, have a, a, a right to, is that when you elect somebody to blow up the system, it means that an explosion is coming. The explosion wasn't the, wasn't the election. I mean, that was one explosion, but it was almost like the pre-explosion. The promise of the election is that there will be an explosion. And people use the word disruption, and there is absolutely no question that Donald Trump is a disruptive force in politics and now in governance. But what happens in disruption is there are winners and losers, and there are going to be some serious losers. And it's fine if the elites and the people who have benefited, including the, the press and the political elites, have benefited from the condition of the country because the elites are fine and they live soft lives anyway. But I'm not sure that they're the only ones who are going to be the collateral damage of the explosion that is, as Emily said, is not a bug, it's a feature. I mean, it's not, to say there's going to be an explosion is not to denigrate uh, uh, Trump's achievement or uh, be, should be seen as a pejorative. 
it is the promise of the election. But let, let's save that actually for the second segment, because I think that's the, that's the next big topic. Let, let's spend a little bit more time on the dynamics of this vote. So, Emily, what happened to the supposed ground game and to the data, particularly to the ground game, where there was all this noise about how good the Clinton turnout machine was going to be and how shoddy the Trump one was? Do we live in an age where this no longer matters or do we think that actually, oh, Clinton would have lost by four points in in Wisconsin rather than one had she not had such a good ground game? Well, I think it's clear we didn't take into account what John was saying about the difference between field goals and having a message that's like a touchdown or more. But also maybe we underestimated the power of the ground games of the local and Senate races that were going on in some of those states. So in Ohio, Trump's folks were at war for a while with the state Republican Party and obviously with John Kasich. But Rob Portman's you know, supporters knew how to get out their ground game. And while Portman ran ahead of Ohio, there were enough Trump voters who were at the polls um, to get him over the line. You know, the other thing that I have been, I sort of hesitate to raise this, but I wonder if the reporting on a surge of Latino voters in the early voting motivated more conservative white voters um, in other parts of swing states to get to the polls to make sure that their voices were also heard. And, you know, look, that's democracy. But the kind of racially tinged part of it is disturbing, especially when you add it on top of some of the voter suppression that was going on. So in North Carolina, for example, a number of polling places were closed in Democratic and Black communities. The state legislature explicitly talked about race in making those closures. And altogether, there were more than 800 polling places across the South that closed. And that's a direct result of the Supreme Court's decision to dismantle a key part of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. John, you described this a minute ago as, as that the Trump voters bought in for an explosion and they want to explode the system. But how does that jibe with the fact that essentially Trump just got the Republican coalition, that, that it wasn't there wasn't some new set of huge new set of voters who who came in and are demanding some massive change? He got Republicans to come and 90 percent of Republicans came and voted for him. Now, they might be a slightly more down market version of of the coalition that voted for for Romney. But this isn't a, it's not that we have an entirely new electorate which has never voted Republican before and is, is surging in. This is Republicans coming home. Well, it was in part Republicans coming home. But it was- and, and, and to, to just to, to add to that thought, which is that when I look at this, what I see is that we have a tremendously partisan country where now partisanship and partisan identity is the overwhelming uh, or the one of the very largest markers that people have about their identity. And come Election Day, that determines almost everything. And then there are these marginal things, which make some difference. And and the marginal thing thing in this case is a few a few million more white working class voters. Right. So, well, but a few million more uh, white working class uh, voters is what made the difference. You're generally right, which is the country sorts super predictably along partisan lines, except that Hillary Clinton got five million fewer votes than Barack Obama. So they don't sort just automatically. Uh, there has to be a message that they turn out to uh, and the message they rally around. Um, and they rallied around the particular message that Donald Trump was selling. Now, I mentioned that, um, and this is why I was talking about the, the popular vote. John, uh, John, uh, sorry to interrupt you. But OK, so what we have is a story where Donald Trump underperforms Mitt Romney and Hillary Clinton Hillary Clinton is clearly a bad candidate. That what we have is a we have an unmandate for Hillary Clinton. We have a Hillary Clinton who's underperforming among Democrats. But it doesn't seem to me that what we see is that there is, in fact, this massive demand for Donald Trump to explode the system. What we see is that like a bunch of Republicans generally came and voted for for Trump and Democrats didn't generally come and vote in the numbers for Clinton. And and that's the story of the election. Well, okay. so what I was trying to say was. Um, there are two two questions here. One, and this is the reason I brought up the popular vote before. One is if you were to make an objective analysis of what did the voters say, what did the, the majority of voters say who participated in the election, and therefore how does that inform the choices politicians should make going forward? And that's obviously just another long way of talking about a mandate. Well, in, in that respect, uh, at the moment, more voters sent a message about Hillary Clinton just purely on the objective relationship between votes cast and a message that that vote is for, 
um, the message that was ratified simply by the, the number of people was Hillary Clinton's message. My point was within the Republican Party, the Republicans that came home and the kind of Republicans who came home came home for a message or, and supported a message that Donald Trump was selling and will now presumably put into effect that was that blow up the system, you know, punch Washington in the nose, outsider change message. That may not be objectively the mandate, but that's certainly what a lot of Republicans thought they were voting for. And that's certainly what he thinks uh, his mandate is from them. Uh, Emily, where does this leave us with an assessment of Hillary Clinton? So she obviously had a great career in public service and I thought ran a ran a tough, smart campaign, which didn't light any imagination. And yet she got hammered in a race that she ought to have won. Uh, should Democrats be recriminating against her? Should they remain proud of uh, that she was this close to being the first woman president? Well, <laughs> I so I feel like it's important to bring up two things here. One is the way in which the WikiLeaks and the email stories were like this constant drip drip that eroded public sense of confidence in her trustworthiness. I mean, before the election, that was the most worrisome number, right? That people saw Trump as more trustworthy. And I think you can't discount the way in which those stories just sort of kept going and going. And if you were only half paying attention, it was just this constant sense that there was a cloud of suspicion hanging over Clinton. And then the other thing we can't quite account for yet is the level of just sexism. How many people in the country were not ready to have a woman as president, especially a woman following a black man? And, you know, the polls showed that 90% of Americans were ready for that, but maybe in the abstract was different from actually voting for her. Although on the other hand, you have to remember that people were voting for this particular woman and that she certainly had her flaws. I mean, one thing I've been torturing myself with this morning is my skepticism about Bernie Sanders' candidacy, because now that we're looking at this election through the crucible of change and being an outsider and a message to, you know, white working class Americans, especially in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, Sanders seems like a stronger candidate for that constituency. And one wonders if he could have gotten more people of color on his side and, and actually forged this progressive majority. But of course, we'll never know. And maybe that's pie in the sky, too. Actually, John, that raises one other question for me, Emily's excellent look back at Bernie. Also, we have in a number of states, including I think Florida, maybe in all of the closest states, uh, third party votes, which had they all gone to Hillary Clinton would have given her easy victories in those states. Should Clinton supporters be going and punching every Gary Johnson supporter they know in the face? Is it the case that those were those should have been Hillary votes and and they would have been Hillary votes absent a Johnson or or Stein running or were, is it was it that is that a fantasy? Well, I think it's not proved that all of the votes that went to Stein and Johnson would have gone to Hillary Clinton uh, to a people might have just bailed on the system and not voted for either candidate and B some of them might have voted for for Donald Trump. So no, I don't think they have grounds. I mean, some number of those votes would have gone to Hillary Clinton, but but there was some um, some sloppy kind of talk last night about sort of every vote that went to a third party candidate would have gone to Hillary Clinton. And that's just that's just not the case. One thing I want to just throw in there quickly that Emily reminded me of when she was raising issues of sexism and, and what role that might have played. I think it's also I don't want it to be uh, misunderstood that my point about the Republicans and why they were supporting Donald Trump I think it's important to recognize also that some portion of his support, when people may not have even gotten to the whole blow up the system, but that it was a it was another manifestation of what we've seen, which is the racial and cultural reaction among some portion of America to the Obama presidency. Now, I base that on a number of uh, political science analyses of both his supporters and of things like when you look at Obama's approval rating, it is the first one that is disconnected from consumer confidence increases. And there's been some political science work that basically normally when consumer confidence goes up, so does the approval rating. And that there is this polarization associated with Obama's approval rating that a lot of people or that political scientists have tied to uh, racial views. And so that's obviously a part of some portion of the, the electorate that voted for Donald Trump. Although I've based all of that on a, a number of different political scientists. And now that Donald Trump has won, uh, perhaps all expert opinion about anything is uh, called into question. 
Don't say that, John. Not true anymore. Including ours. Including well, ours everything I just be. said. So that could be a double, uh, a double uh, twist back. Wait. So if everything you just said is called into question and you had called into question that political scientist, then... Whoa. Uh, he could be right. We're in the, we're, we're in the matrix. <laughs> Hall of mirrors. <laughs> Peter Thiel has indeed triumphed. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We're now joined by Slate Group Chairman and host of Trumpcast, a podcast for the next four years, uh, <laughs> Jacob Weisberg. Jacob, uh, thanks for joining us. First of all, is Trumpcast, the podcast you've been doing, going to continue through the Trump administration? Well, that was the deal. And um, I have to say, I've gotten a lot of messages saying uh, people asking for me to keep doing it. And um, I feel like I, I'm going to keep doing it. I, I feel like I, I, I need to for myself. But uh, also, this is this is the only subject in politics. And um, I see, uh, alas, I, I, I'm afraid I'm going to keep going. Donald Trump is going to be president. Uh, here we have a narcissist with no apparent interest in governing, no uh, discipline to study or prepare for anything important. Someone who is obsessed with himself and his fame, who is going to be the president of the United States. And we may feel revulsion uh, or shock and disappointment that a person who has so little discipline, so little wisdom, so little willingness to to prepare will occupy the White House. But he's going to be president and America needs to understand what that means and needs to live with it. So, Emily, let me start with you. Is there any chance that Donald Trump is just going to be a relatively normal Republican president surrounded by your basic crop of of conservatives your who are going to do the usual expected conservative policy measures he'll get a supreme court justice but that it's a it's it's your basic f7 uh republican presidency I don't think so. Although I feel like the main lesson of this election is that trying to make predictions about what Donald Trump will actually do based on what he says is futile and we should just forget about it but one thing that does seem consistent is his vindictiveness. And so the notion that after these mainstream establishment Republicans have denounced him and fled from him, that he's going to reward them by handing over any of the keys to the federal government seems really unlikely. And then when you look at the people who were loyal to him and surrounded him, Chris Christie, Newt Gingrich, Rudy Giuliani, Stephen Bannon, you don't see a group of, you know, regular Republicans. So I, I don't quite see how he gets to like normal Republican president land. That said, I feel like I have no idea what he is actually going to do because I think there's a disconnect between his words and his probable deeds that we've all been missing all along. Like we made a mistake by taking him literally. And so I just don't know what to think is going to happen next. Jacob, if you if you assume that the day to day work of the Trump administration when it comes to policy is going to be done by Giuliani and Gingrich and Christie and their acolytes. Why is that going to be so different than whatever it would have been under a President Cruz or a President Rubio or even a President Kasich? Well, you start with Trump's headline policies and they break down into implausible, implausible and inadvisable, right? So, I mean, he, he's got to build some kind of wall. That was his biggest campaign promise. He has to 
do something to punish China on trade, which will provoke retaliation, which will likely lead to a kind of trade war, which would be disastrous. He is going to have to do something to implement his ideas around fighting terrorism and military policy. And you sort of go down the list and you and you uh, have these commitments uh, that don't map very well to any other policies that have been seriously contemplated by serious people. And But then he does have this group of basically unserious people he's going to turn to to implement them. Rudy Giuliani, Chris Christie, Peter Thiel. And it's just sort of hard to, I mean, I think, look, we're, you know, I feel like I'm still in the sitting Shiva stage of dealing with Trump's victory. But when you start to think about what it means in terms of policy, I don't even know how we kind of get from from here to there. But Republicans control the government. He can do it. No one's going to stop him from implementing his policies. John, do you think that Trump is going to feel obliged to keep to his campaign promises? He he doesn't he's not a man who seems to be a man of his word generally. Do you think that this is going to be a, a case where he is going to feel like he has to do things? There are many, many fascinating questions. So why why is it important for him to keep his campaign promises, which when, as you say, one of his skills is um, the malleability of of all things that he says and believes? Um, well, first of all, we'll see if the people who elected him or the sorry, the Republicans who sent him, one of the key complaints they have is that Republicans change their views when they get to Washington. So he will be committing what what is a mortal sin by not following through. So we'll see if that really matters. It may not matter to them. A lot of the things that he did didn't matter to the voters when he was running. The second thing is he might uh, do, and there, I'm sure there's a fancy expression for this, but basically he'll do a kind of a thing that's a wall-ish, wall-like situation, and he'll just call it a wall and call it a win and move on. So that he'll, it's like his position on being against the Iraq war. He wasn't, but he'll just keep saying he was, and that'll be that. And then the third thing I think is um, what'll be interesting to watch is that there are a lot of Republicans who want to try and do things. They have legislation that's ready to go. Donald Trump wants to achieve some things. These were not on his list. His list is also expensive. There are Republicans who still believe in trying to be fiscally responsible. Now we'll see how much they are when they've got to deal with a president who wants to do a lot of the things that he wants to do, which go unpaid for. But um, there are, there's a lot of legislation they could hand him to sign or try to get him to pass along. And so what that will do is there's going to be a lot of activity. And there's going to be a lot of debate about whether what they're proposing uh, is sensible or not. In terms of the battle of ideas, uh, there may be actually um, a lot to talk about. Right. It, couldn't it be the case, Jacob, that, that these, these two, the split Republican Party unites around the thing? So it doesn't deal with trade or immigration where it's, it's very heavily split, but does deal with climate energy stuff. It just pushes a more aggressive energy policy. It does deal with Obamacare by doing some kind of rollback of Obamacare. It does get a Supreme Court justice passed. It does have a bigger defense budget. It does get harsher with Iran. That those are things that he can do, which fit neatly within the general within where there is Republican consensus. Right. The Republican consensus is around undoing the Obama administration. And I think they're in a position to do that very quickly if they want to follow through on it. But the um, you know, I think the, the, the larger issue to me is that Trump was elected less on any of these specific commitments than he was on a preference for the American past over the American present. I mean, I think what Trump's voters said really is we prefer a homog- more homogenous country culturally and r- racially to a more multicultural one. We prefer a more industrial economy to the post-industrial one. We prefer a more equal division of wealth and income than we do a growing inequality. He can't deliver that. I mean, he can deliver on specific policies, but he can't deliver on the idea that you can make people happier by making the country more like the country they remember from decades ago. Right. But doesn't that suggest that, in fact, as a policy matter, there isn't a lot he can do that's going to help these people. And so he'll probably just go to the path of least resistance, which is that he has a Republican majority, a conservative Republican majority that wants to do certain things around Obamacare and and around climate and around defense spending. And he'll just do that. 
Which makes it a big, a regular Republican administration. But a regular Republican administration tries to deliver on most of its promises like a regular Democratic administration does. I mean, we, people have looked at this, have no- noticed that in office, presidents, when elected, try to do most of what they said they were going to do. I don't think he's as slippery as he is. I don't see him dropping his big ticket items that he campaigned about. Now, they may become more gestural, as you say. You know, he does claim victory pretty quickly, right? I mean, he'll be, he will, it will not take him many months to get from I alone can fix it to I alone have fixed it. Right. Right. Emily, there was an interesting uh, note in a piece by Frank Forer and Slate, I think, last night saying what we have is an authoritarian taking the office of the presidency at the moment that the presidency is at the very height of executive power. What do you think that means legally or what do you think it means in terms of how Trump might use the office of the presidency in ways that we haven't seen? Or do you think he will end up being constrained by tradition and norms and by Republicans in the legislature and on the Supreme Court? I don't see any reason to think he will be constrained, although that's scary. So I hope he will be. There is a tremendous amount of might in the federal government, just in the number of federal agencies, the budgets they have, the degree of discretion they exercise. And, you know, as Jacob said, we're going to see some things happen really fast. So President Trump can get out of the climate change treaty and undo the Iran deal on his own. Those aren't things that he needs Congress to be involved in. And there are ways in which he could change, you know, trade deals that are true of that, too. He can try to renegotiate NATO to push other countries to pay more for it. Those are things that lie within the discretion of the executive and deportations do as well. The thing I think I find the most um, uncertain and kind of Orwellian is the lying. So he doesn't tell the truth and he lies about things that we can see happening right in front of us are not the way he says they are if we care to look. And the very recent example was him telling his audiences at rallies that President Obama was screaming at a pro-Trump protester. No such screaming was happening. Obama was on video speaking quite gently and respectfully, and Trump kept making this assertion at his rallies. So what's going to happen when the whole might of the federal government is on the side of the person who doesn't tell the truth? Does that mean that we're not going to be able to trust the government when it tells us about certain facts? John, will the Republicans who have disavowed or distanced themselves from him and and said he is, you know, not not the person they ideally want as president and have uh, avoided him, are they just going to reconcile and come into government? Is he going to be able to draw on the same cadre of people as a a president Kasich would have? Well, I've identified two um, responses to that question. I'm sure there are more. One is the uh, rush around to the front of the parade response, which is people who see that he won uh, who are involved in politics and want to um, grow in politics. And so they may have been trying to keep their distance before, but yeah, as a way to hedge their bets, but now they want to be on his team. Um, the second is people who are never Trumpers, but who feel a sense of duty. They thought he would be a disaster for the country and for particularly America's foreign policy in the world. But now that he has control of the levers of power, they feel they have a duty to get in there, play some kind of role to keep him from doing something truly dire. I just talked to somebody this morning who is in that camp, somebody who was very much a never-Trumper, I mean, very strongly, but now feels a sort of a patriotic duty to to try to not let this go wrong. Um, so I don't know how many people are in each camp. I'm, you know, I can't extrapolate. I, one other thing I just want to throw in that's connected to this. When we think about the political pressures of the Donald Trump presidency, I mean, if off-year elections are um, the people who participate in off-year elections are the most fervent members of a party, they are likely to be big Trump supporters. And so therefore, his power in dealing with Congress and picking winners and losers as a president to punish Republicans who do or don't work with him, he'll always have that threat at his back that he, you know, if he puts the bad mark on you, you could get a primary challenge. You could, uh, his relationship with the voters was so durable in this presidential campaign. I think that gives him a certain amount of power. We already saw it work among a number of House Republicans and Senate Republicans who didn't want to buck him for fear of um, getting in trouble with voters. So I think that that power will remain very much intact 
will be something that he he will undoubtedly wield, or that he might even wield without having to wield it. I mean, that people will feel it and uh, and and temper themselves. John, I want to go back to something you were talking about in the first segment. Just that Trump voters have bought shares in Trump for an explosion. They want the explosion. They seek the explosion. When you say that, you may not have a specific idea, but I, going back to what Jacob was saying a minute ago, I have a hard time seeing exactly how Trump can deliver an actual explosion to voters or what that would be like or what would yeah. they would want. Do you have any sense about what that might be in terms of how he governs, in terms of what he does in Washington or how he presents America to the world? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I, obviously, there there's trade and, and immigration, but that those things are not necessarily blowing things up. I mean, the big thing he promises to blow things up is the corrupt crony corporate interests, except that he spent a great deal of time raising money for the Republican Party, which depends, as all political parties do, on the corrupting, I'm using Donald Trump's words here, corrupting influence of special interest people. And he shows, he has he has a few things here and there where you can't, you know, lobby the government after being in it. But he didn't do anything about campaign finance. He doesn't do anything about the influence of the Koch brothers or anything else, even though he used that to uh, in his speeches. And he talked about people who take money being puppets and all of that. Um, there's no ev- there's no evidence that he's actually going to follow through on that. So, Jacob, one area where we in this room and on this podcast are, are particularly uh, interested is uh, Trump's relationship to the media, that he has had an incredibly antagonistic relationship to the media. His supporters share their, that skepticism of the mainstream media, or an antagonistic and also, obviously, intimate relationship with the media. He loves it. Um, do you think there is anything that Trump could do or would do that will constrain how the press operates? Um, or is it, as I fear, it's more just that we've, we've uh, created these two alternative fact universes and Trump will just continue to create a, a false fact universe and allow will allow our the mainstream media can, to continue to put out the truth, but he won't worry about it because he's got this whole other armature of Bannons. Yeah, it feels like we're headed towards more of a, I don't know, Eastern European type dynamic where there's an official press, Breitbart, Fox News, uh, the Las Vegas Review, whatever, whatever else that that defends and represents his point of view, and then the rest of the media is in some way opposition media, and that he may treat it as opposition media. There's nothing to say that he has to let reporters follow him everywhere he goes, that he has to hold press conferences. I mean, a lot of these things are precedent that he may decide he doesn't he doesn't want to continue. I mean, I think the larger question there is if. I'm right that Trump has the soul of a dictator and he tries to behave in authoritarian ways that often begin with trying to restrict control, damage the, the, the independent press. What happens? Who, who, what are the institutions that, can, that will challenge Trump's authoritarianism? Number one is the free press, which is in a weakened position uh, – Financially, economically, the, the, the most important news organizations in the country, the New York Times, are just – they're more vulnerable than they've ever been. What are the other institutions? The federal courts, obviously. Um, but w- he's now going to fill an empty seat on the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court is going to go back to having a five to four conservative majority to start with. What other institutions? The military. I mean, I think, you know, Trump has talked about giving illegal orders. There are real concerns about Trump's control of the nuclear button. We have to rely on the, the, the independence of the armed forces to defy orders that violate international law and violate the laws of war. We have the Fed, you know, but I think we have to think about who is not subject to Trump's whim and who can stand up to Trump's pressure, it it begins with with the independent press. Do you think he can do anything to constrain the independence of the press other than sort of talk about how weak it is and how lame it is and not let them into his press conferences, although he so craves their attention that he is presumably going to want that attention to continue? I mean, he's threatened to file all sorts of suits. And, you know, this is a precedent in a lot of countries, you know, in, in Turkey, for example, Erdogan, the, the, the elected 
dictatorial leader, have, has filed personal lawsuits for essentially slander against all sorts of journalists and, and put them on trial. And that may seem an extreme example, but you know, one of the precedents we have is that the uh, president doesn't file law- civil lawsuits while in office. He could test precedent and test law on that. He seems to think, you know, he said he wants to tighten libel laws. There is no federal libel law. I don't think it's very likely he could pass a federal libel law. But who knows? Nobody could put someone on the Supreme Court where that was that person's agenda. It might be hard to get five votes for it. But that would be the route to weakening the libel protections because that's where they come from. Yeah, I mean, but I I think this is an area for for maximal worry, maximal concern, because I don't think, again, I don't know what he'll do, but I doubt that he'll do nothing to follow up on everything he said during the campaign. I just want to add a note about all of the fake news that circulated very effectively to a lot of traffic on Facebook. And these were manufactured news sites, some of them domestic, some of them in places like Macedonia, that were putting out crazy rumors about the Clintons, about people on the Clintons team that seemed unbelievable. And yet they were showing up in people's Facebook feeds as if they were real news and they were influencing people's views. And because the media is so distrusted right now, the difference between real media sources and fake sources is erosive. And I just that is something I think we need to hold platforms like Facebook accountable for. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No so, John had to leave us to go do some reporting and uh, commentating on for his real job on CBS. So, uh, we're going to do our next segment, our Slate Plus segment, without him, but Jacob is staying with us, fortunately. So, Let's move on to our last topic, which is what do you do now? You're a you're a citizen. Maybe you were a, a, a never Trumper or a Hillary, a fierce Hillary advocate. Uh, you are dismayed, disturbed, alarmed by Trump's election. What is your role in the Trump in Trump universe? What's your civic obligation? What are the things that you can do? to be most effective that can bring about the change that you want. Emily, do you have any thoughts about that to start? Yeah, I mean, it's so important. I guess I have to start at home in my own house. My kids are really alarmed and there's something heartbreaking about them seeing someone rewarded for treating other people, you know, people of color, women, disabled people so shabbily that just flies in the face of the values we've tried to instill in them and what I want them to expect from the country. And so I feel like the first task is just to reassure kids that they're going to be okay, even though we're not exactly sure how that's going to play out. But to both make room for the most alarmist scenarios that we need to guard against and also not like jump off the cliff before we have to so that we don't create this kind of sense of hopelessness and nihilism around us. Jacob, One of the problems that the election map pointed out to all of us is that if you look at a map, you know, we live with people like ourselves, spend time with people like ourselves. I don't think at that event that uh, you and I were at that Slate did the election watching party last night, I doubt there was a Trump voter there in the 500 or 700 people in the audience. How in a world where you don't know people who are who support the the president and, and his policies, how can you possibly understand it or, or or engage with it in a useful way. Right. Well, I do think there's been a failure of understanding of Trump supporters and what they think and, and why they're upset. But at the same time, I think I run the Slate group. I mean, I, I you know, my only positive feeling when I woke up this morning was that Slate has never been so necessary or so important that we have a group of readers and listeners who depend on us to help them understand the world and to be rational and to be lucid and to be fair, uh, but that also the basic truth-telling function of journalism is going to be 
more necessary than it's ever been and more under siege than it's ever been because I think there are these tremendous natural forces to normalize Trump. And now that he's won the presidency, to treat him and treat this like it's an ordinary, unusual, but but acceptable phenomenon in American politics. And I think, you know, as, as a member of the press, someone who, who leads the business side of a news organization, I feel our role is to not be strident, not be hysterical, but to tell the truth and describe the reality and to stand up for for the idea of rationalism and an enlightened approach to um, policy and ideas. You know, I think part of what, what Emily was getting at is, is, you know, fake news is just one expression of the whole rejection of a rationalist worldview. Right. And you can't you can't give in to that and say, all right, well, you have your your facts and we have ours. You have to uphold rationalism and reality as as a cause, you know. And I think it's it's going to be under siege for the next few years at, at least. It's a little bit of beautiful. That's a little, a little bit of sense of what I I feel my role is now. I mean, David. Also, J- Jacob said something earlier about the losers and the winners, which is stark but true. And I think our one of our big jobs as journalists is going to be thinking about who is losing and who is suffering and, you know, in a calm but rigorous way, figuring out the impact of this presidency. Because, I mean, one thing is Trump is going to be accountable now. Like, he's the president. It's pretty hard to pass the buck and refuse to accept blame for things going wrong when you're actually president of the United States. And so if things unravel, if people get hurt, those stories and and that truth needs to be out there front and center because he's going to try to deny it and pretend it's not there. But, you know, we have to do our best (laughs) to tell that story. Well, Emily, I think your point from a few minutes ago about his possible willingness to manipulate the facts that the government creates is one that actually alarms me. Is that so much of what we depend on government for is reliable tracking of of how we live and how we prosper and what people do and and whether things are going well and poorly. And if you have somebody who is unwilling to be honest about that, it makes it very hard to to hold him to account. Right. But how do you turn like the Bureau of Labor Statistics into a propaganda machine? I mean, there are lots of people who work there. They are career government employees. They know how to do their jobs. Like there are steps along the way to that happening. And I, (laughs) yeah, somehow we have to figure out how to help support that. What about politically? Democrats just took a huge beating. We haven't even talked about the fact that they, they didn't get close to taking the Senate, didn't get close to taking the House. They are in poor shape in the state houses. What politically should Democrats think about doing to recover? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, silence. Nobody, silence. Jacob, please. We don't have a clue, but, you know, I think I I was going into the election assuming that we were going to have a period of Republican recriminations where that party had to focus on its divisions and figuring out how people who disagreed were going to get along with each other. And look, you know, it's it's maybe a couple of days before we sort of start to get into this. But I think that's going to happen on the Democratic side again. And the argument from the Sanders, Elizabeth Warren type people is that the, the party has given up on the working class and that, you know, in some ways it dovetails with with the Trump critique about the establishment being co-opted and identifying with the interests of of the wealthy and being out of touch. And I think that tide is going to be hard to resist in the party. I mean, I don't you know, I I don't think the the natural successor candidate to Hillary Clinton is Tim Kaine or, or, you know, a very mainstream Democrat who's been in Washington. I think it's someone who's more revolutionary in the other direction. And you start to have the the kind of politics that really do not resemble the politics we all grew up with, where Republicans stood for some version of Reaganism and Democrats stood for some version of Clintonism. I mean, you really could have, you know, two competing populisms, a right wing populism represented by Trumpism and a left wing populism represented probably not by Bernie Sanders just because of age and the unlikelihood he'd be the candidate again, but but represented more by his view of the world. But but then do you think that that Democrats need uh, to focus less on the presidency and start building a grassroots, a grassroots progressive party, which concentrates on winning some state houses and, and creating a cadre of 
young politicians who can become leaders. I think I feel like one of the problems the Democrats have had is that they they had this obsessive focus on holding the White House because Obama held the White House and that that's been nice and and because Congress seems so out of reach. But as a result, it's become a a party which had a head but no feet. And I wonder if that I wonder how they redress that. Right. That's a long-term building project, though. I mean, President Obama has talked about making state races his priority when he's no longer president, and now there's a new urgency to that project. It doesn't get you the the revolutionary or the just, you know, populist standard bearer in the next election, though. I mean, that person has to come from an office to which they've already been elected, presumably, or somewhere else. Who knows? There were a couple of bright spots for Democrats. Should we just mention that, you know, Nevada has a new Latina senator, Kamala Harris won in California. Uh, so there are a couple of places across the country where you could see, um, because of the demographics, a different answer to this question. I wonder if there's going to be a way in which in this with the state of California and the city of New York that even though Democrats ha- are really out of power everywhere and and the national government's going to be a catastrophe they can use the the influence of that that state and that city and the popular imagination and in uh, their ability to sort of move markets slightly and and to create ideas to to evangelize democratic ideas um even though they're losing actually losing everything at the national level uh, that you know, California having higher air emission, having higher emission standards, influenced the whole country over the past generation, or the way that New York City banning smoking caused ban- smoking bans to to proliferate around the country. And then, if you rather than thinking of of the job of politics as simply being winning elections, but actually using using your your strongholds as models, that maybe there's something there. If you're a progressive activist, you have to think locally. I mean, the state level sort of the maximum level you can think of because there's literally nothing you can do to tr- try to advance your goals right now on a federal level. And federal level, you can hope to prevent certain kinds of damage. But if you actually want to accomplish something in terms of progressive change, you have to look to those state governments or city governments where it's possible to create democratic models. Emily, Jacob talked at the beginning of the segment about the role of the free press and to be rational and the importance of Slate and and the work that places like Slate do. Can you think of specific actions that you could take to ameliorate what you fear? First of all, it's like community, right? Reassuring that I live in a blue city in which there are going to be a lot of people who are going to feel alarmed and a lot of people who could be deported. And so, you know, look, there are things I think we have to look out for in terms of real breaches of civil liberties on a kind of individual citizenship level. And then I think as a journalist, we have to pledge ourselves to keeping as rigorous an eye as we possibly can on the activities of the federal government. And also to be open to the idea that maybe this won't turn out to be as apocalyptic and alarming as we all feel like it could be. I mean, Donald Trump has had very pragmatic moments in his life, and he presumably is not going to want to be a failed president who causes a huge recession and, you know, international instability. So it's possible that we're also going to have to adjust the idea that, as you said, David, that maybe he does turn into a rather standard Republican president, and that even if it's galling to think about normalizing him that, you know, we have to look at what's actually happening in front of us and react to that. What do you think? How do you feel like you can change your life? Well, the only things I thought of were individual actions, like when you actually think international travel, so going to places and representing America in a kind of positive way when you go elsewhere. And similarly, if there are ways to take in and accommodate, uh, visitors to America from overseas um, who are, you know, whether it's immigrants being somebody who who works to help immigrants and and shelter immigrants and refugees. I think that's a that's a worthy act. Um, That's something I was thinking about. Like, can I have a refugee family in my house? I don't know. And and Trump's not going to make it easy. Right. But I mean, but there are you know, but there are organizations right now that I think you can turn to because they they both deal with this issue. You know, the International Rescue Committee is the most important organization in the United States that helps 
refugees get here and helps them when they get here. You know, I'm going to write a check to the the International Rescue Committee. I would have anyway because I believe in its work. But now it seems to take on a political connotation when at other times it would just seem a neutral thing you do to help people who, who are in need of your assistance. Right, right. And maybe it's more than writing checks, too. Maybe it's engaging in the community and in civic life and volunteering in a way that, you know, some of us don't do enough of. Let's go to cocktail chatter. <laughs> if there was anything, if there's anything that's happened uh, in my circles over the last couple of days, it's cocktails and chatter and cocktails and more cocktails and then chatter and more cocktails. So I don't know whether uh, either of you has had an opportunity to think of some cocktail chatter, which isn't directly related to the election or you have some some pleasant thought uh, <laughs> i have a little tiny but sort of half only ha- because i'm so adult i didn't quite figure out all the specifics of this but from the point of view of criminal justice reformers there was a another bright spot in this election which is that some really hardline prosecutors lost in places like tampa um in texas People who, you know, were being very harsh with sentencing and charging were thrown out of office. And Joe Arpaio, the sheriff in Maricopa County, Arizona, who is famous and infamous for going after immigrants, came under criminal investigation himself, and he was also voted out. All right. There we go. Jacob. I'm I'm a little bit chatterless. I'm, my my teeth are chattering, but that's not true. I guess <laughs> Does that count? Uh, you know, I think that counts. What? Yeah. I, I'm going to be uh, first of all. I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to stay away from the bottle for a while. I think it's you know um, uh, I, I want to crutch. Yeah, I want to I want to not rely on that. Um, I do think it's important. Everyone has to think about the things you do that that make you feel better because I think a lot of us are going to be feeling very low about this and and powerless and helpless. I'm planning to make dinner for my family tonight and uh, go for some long runs because uh, exercise is the one thing that helps me process and, and feel like there's going to be a way, a way forward after something really terrible happens. And then maybe, uh, maybe take in some, some art over the weekend. That sounds like a great idea. Uh, actually, I'm going to change my chatter. I was going to do kind of a gloomy one. Please you, don't. I'm going to redo a chatter <laughs> I've done before because I think it's really apropos per cooking and refugees, the International Rescue Committee. I've talked about this uh, on the GapFest in the past, but why not talk about it again? There is in New York City the most wonderful organization uh, which goes exactly against what Trumpism stands for. It is called the League of Kitchens, and it is a cooking school, essentially, where you go to the home of a an immigrant to America, usually a woman, usually a middle-aged or older woman, who's a great home cook. And you spend the afternoon with this woman, you learn how to cook and you have meals with her and you learn her life story and share your life story and come away with expertise and personal knowledge of, of a culture and of a food and a, and a, and a food culture in a very small group, uh, half a dozen people at most in, in the classes. The class I did last year was with a woman named Nawida who is an Afghan refugee rescued by the International Rescue Committee, essentially from slavery in Pakistan. And she's a Muslim immigrant to the United States. She has kids. She works really hard. She's an amazing cook. She loves being here. She lives in an apartment in Queens and just creates these fabulous meals for people and and shares her life and her culture. And it's fantastic. So if you get a chance to take a class at the League of Kitchens, um, you should. It's in New York City. And it really... It, it stands for what is best and most welcoming about this country. That sounds both moving and delicious. It is. You, you, would, you should do it, Jacob. You would love it. You sign, honestly sign would. Sign me up. I will. Yeah. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply, including, of course, Trumpcast, which will continue, Jacob has promised. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to us in iTunes and comment and rate. For Emily Bazelon and Jacob Weisberg and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll see you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 